Well, I'm very excited to be here this morning. Thank you uh, to Redemption Church, to Pastor Fred, and for uh, Greg putting all of this together and giving me an opportunity to have this platform to bring the message to you all. Um, this is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I do work for an organization that puts out a ton of video content. Those are usually one-minute clips at a time, and so... Uh, I'm used to performing for an audience of a phone or a camera. At the same time, though, uh, this is definitely uh, a little bit different, a little bit out of, I guess, everybody's comfort zone, but I'm glad that you all have joined in, and um, I'm excited to gather around God's Word together today. So again, as Pastor Fred said, my name is Marty Mandak, and we are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you uh, haven't turned there yet or got on your phone or, or whatever, go ahead and turn there. And we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 22 together. So Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 to 22. And I'm going to go ahead and read that passage, and then we'll jump into the word together. So the Bible says, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. It is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools, for like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This, too, is futile. Surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the mind. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. Don't say, why were the former days better than these, since it is not wise of you to ask this. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun, because wisdom is protection as silver is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Consider the work of God, for who can straighten out what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. Verse 15, in my futile life I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. Don't be excessively righteous, and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip from your hand, for the one who fears God will end up with both of them. Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than ten rulers of a city. There is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins, so don't pay attention to everything people say or you may hear your servant cursing you, for in your heart you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. So it's with that I'd like to open and talk about a survey that I found. And the, the, the topic of the survey was the top ten things people want in life but can't seem to get enough of. Here's the question that was asked in the survey. If you could say in one word what you want more of in life, what would it be? And the top 10 answers were happiness, money, freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, confidence, stability, and passion. 
I think those are great answers. I think some of my top answers would definitely be in that category, but the question is not so much what do we want more in life, it's how do we get there? And are, are those things truly what's best for us? You see, wisdom is the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. It is the quality of being wise. So piggybacking off of everything that we learned and have read up until this point, that life under the sun is futile. We've heard that time and time again in the book of Ecclesiastes, that life on earth does not fully satisfy. There is indeed a time for everything. There is a better life to live and then just a few weeks ago, we learned that more money equals more problems. So the author kicks off this chapter with a series of wise sayings. You might even see them separated off from what looks like normal biblical text. It almost looks like poetic uh, structure. He starts with a popular proverb, a good name is more valuable than perfume. Some versions say riches or luxury. But I want you to understand that name has a deeper meaning than merely your reputation. It's speaking to the totality of your underlying nature, who you are. A good reputation that flows out of your character. It's true authenticity. Think about it. It doesn't matter if you smell great, if your life stinks. <laughs> if you have horrible character, I think most people could agree to this idea. That's a general concept that we all seem to embrace, but things quickly turn to what a life of character might require in the verses to follow, engaging with the authentic challenges of life. And wisdom being the only way to navigate this thing we call life. So point number one, if you're taking notes this morning, or there will, be, uh, there will be points on the screen for you, but if you are a note taker, if you like to jot down some stuff, point number one is this. Wisdom can discern the pleasant and difficult things in this life. We, we gain this, we, we see this in verses 1 through 14, so I'd like to break this down a little bit. But I want to give you two life scenarios here. Life scenario number one is a life full of death, mourning, Grief, sadness, rebuke, the end of all matters, and patience trying to navigate through all of that. So that's life scenario number one. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Sounds like everybody's vacation life. But then there's life scenario number two, a life full of birth, feasting, laughter, pleasure, songs, beginnings of all matters, and then a life full of pride. So I'm not going to lie. I mean, life scenario number one sounds horrible. Uh, I'd probably pass if, that was, if I was on The Price is Right and that was the showcase showdown uh, uh, package. I'm, I'm probably not bidding on that one. However, the life full of birth and feasting and laughter and pleasure, those things sound appealing. But I want you to notice something here. The author's use of the word better what does better mean? Better literally means more good. So it's not that one is good and the other is bad. There's nothing wrong or bad about life scenario number two. There's nothing wrong with birth and feasting and laughter and pleasure and songs. and pro There's nothing necessarily innately wrong with those things. But 
The question really remains is how in the world is life scenario number one better? How is it more good? How is it that death is better than birth? How is it that mourning is better than feasting, grief better than laughter? Those are some of the things that I want us to look at. But regardless, this all seems like backwards thinking. The author, what they're proposing to us seems like someone who has their their head on backwards. And if we're being honest, where's the value in the the life in scenario number one? What's, What's to gain? What is truly better? I think if we examine some of these things closer, we might just grasp what the author is trying to show us. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about verses two through four. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all of mankind. And the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. And the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the, f- the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. See, there is wisdom in being more than casually acquainted with the fragility of your life. Life here is fragile. I've never been to a birthday party, uh, especially younger kids. I actually remember uh, even my own son, his, his two-year-old birthday party and even his first birthday. Just, I've never been to a party for, for that, for that occasion, and been reflecting on my own mortality. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have done that. If you, if you have, um, I don't know how fun that party was, but either way, it's, it's at these parties, it's, it's, it's at these, these beginnings of life, so to speak. It's, it's celebrating life. We don't think about our own death, and yet, what about funerals? You see, even just this past weekend, um, my family, uh, regret- regrettably, we had to bury my grandmother. And it's amazing to me how these verses right here jump out at me because the author's saying that it's better to go to a house of mourning than to feasting. The author says that grief is better than laughter. And I think what he's getting at here is that, well, he says in verse 3, when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. This actually can also be translated to a heart may be put right. There's so much more that we can learn about the reality of this life that we live during these sacred moments rather than dozens of parties full of feasting and laughter and pleasure. It's in those moments when we face death, grief, sadness that our heart is put right. We start to take stock of what's most important in our life. You know, at at my son's birthday parties, yes, I'm excited, and it's all about the potential, the future potential, but at the same time, it's at the funeral for my grandmother where I really started to take stock of my own life. You know, how did I treat her? Did I treat her the best? Did I make the most of this time? Am I making the most of the time that I have left with my other family members and in my own life? Because it seems like everybody, even that was around her age, seemed to tell me the same thing. Man, life just goes so quickly. There were people there that knew her her entire life, and it's like, it seems like just yesterday we were, you fill in the blank. And it's, it's amazing how quickly this life goes. And so we see that mourning is better than feasting. We see that the end, uh, or we see that grief is better than laughter, and we see that um, mourning is better than pleasure. But if we move on from that, I don't want to spend too much time on that. We, we'll start to get into this idea of rebuke. So verse 5 and 6 says, It's better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. 
this too is futile. Sharp disapproval or criticism. We don't like it, but what does it do? It keeps us on our toes, right? Keeps us accountable. It keeps us grounded. Songs of fools. Now, I'm not sure if this author is talking about literal songs or maybe just praises from other people, but either way, songs of fools, well, that's what keeps us on cloud nine. We're untouchable in those moments. We escape reality. I can remember growing up, uh, sneaking into my sister's room and stealing all of her CDs and just listening to album after album on my Walkman. I know I'm not as old as uh, some of the other people on staff here, uh, but I remember like CD players and just listening to albums, and I mean like destroying CDs because of how much I listened to songs over and over and over again. And what was I doing there? I was looking for self-validation. And so songs of fools may give us some sense of self-validation at some point, but it quickly fades. The Bible literally says, for like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This too is futile. It's amazing because the crackling of thorns, thorny branches, when you throw them in the fire, they make a great spark. They have a wonderful crackle to them and the light illuminates from the fire burning up those. But at the same time, that flame does not last. It goes away quickly. The same goes with the songs of fools. It's this, rebuke is not this negative thing. It's this iron sharpens iron mentality. But I want to pause there for a second because it seems like as we move into verse 7, the author kind of throws a curveball at us. He says, surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the mind. Let's define a couple of things first. First off, extortion is the practice of obtaining something, especially money, through force or threats. Another, uh, you can look at this a different way. Um, There are different translations. Sometimes the word extortion uh, is translated to the word oppression. So surely the practice of oppression, what is oppression? Prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control. So the author has kind of paused here and has recognized, first off, that adversity is instructive and beneficial. I think we've learned that a little bit with some of the prior verses. But he also understands that suffering, hardship, also has its limit. It could destroy a wise man's reason. When we are in a rough season of our life, aren't we more likely to, first off, feel oppressed whether that's mentally, uh, uh, we're under mental pressure or distress, or maybe even accept bribes. Or what about extortion? Extorting others in desperate situations. I think we're seeing a lot of that maybe even, this might go to the extreme, but you go into the grocery stores and you see aisles and aisles of food just wiped out during this desperate time. And there's people who may be extorting (laughs) you know, forcibly taking more than what they need and there's other people that are left without because of our own selfish, we, we need these things rather than being gracious and sharing with one another, what have you. But it's when life just isn't working out too well for us, we'll do anything to make the pain stop. I think that's what the author is trying to say here. The wise man can take the difficult things of this life and find good in them. But the fool, he caves literally to 
anything, anything that will get him out of that situation. And then we see here in verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. So we're told that the end is better than the beginning of a matter. Now, I don't know about you, but beginnings are always exciting for me. I think about beginnings of workout plans or diets. It may not be exciting necessarily like, oh, because i got to cut all this stuff out. But we get excited, right? When we start a new workout plan or we start training for a marathon, what do we do? We go out and buy new outfits. This is my running outfit. We go out and buy a new pair of tennis shoes, new pair of socks. We're so excited. How about the beginning of a sports season? Sorry to bring up sports in such a dire time in our nation's history. Uh, but think about the beginning of, of, of a sports season. We have so much anticipation. So much hope is there, right? However... The author is very clear that the end is better, is more good than the beginning. So there can be beautiful reflection on things upon their completion. I think about, you know, workout plans. If we're going to go back to that for a second, is it more exciting to start training for the marathon, although there's all this excitement and hope, or what about when the marathon is complete? The beautiful reflection of the hard work that you put in to accomplish that one task. You know, when you look at house projects, we might not be excited to start house projects, but there's so much potential, right? Oh, I can just picture what my living room might look like after. But then when it's actually done, you look back and you say, man, look at the work that I accomplished. And that reflection upon completion requires a certain amount of patience. Patience is contrasted with pride. We'll see this in the next verse here. Um... Because it requires, why is patience contrasted with pride? Well, because it requires humility to understand that your way of living and your timing are not the end-all be-all. And that there is a purpose in the process. Maybe God is trying to show me something in all of this. Verse 9, don't let your spirit rush to be angry for anger abides in the heart of fools. This desire to avoid difficult things, to avoid the, the life scenario that was full of all of these hardships, death, pain, grief, rebuke, a life lived merely under the sun mentality, well, that can lead us to become very angry very quickly when our comfort here on earth is disrupted. And I think we're seeing that firsthand in this season of life. Our comfort, our everyday comfort, what we're used to doing, our routines are being quickly just, the rug's being pulled out from underneath us and we're all getting angry. I just want to go out and do. I just want to be here. I just want to go hang out with my friends. And I understand all that. And I think in a certain context, uh, I can relate to that and empathize with that. But at the same time, it leads us to be angry very quickly, which is why the author is certain to make mention the need to not allow your spirit to rush to be angry. Essentially, he knows this stuff will happen. There's going to be discomfort and hardship and difficulty in this life. Don't try to avoid it. Or you'll be left angry and bitter, leading to the mentality that's challenged then in the verse to follow, verse 10, where the author says, Don't say, why were the, 
the former days better than these, since it is not wise of you to ask this. I feel like at least me, in the past couple weeks, I've asked myself this question. Man, remember before things started closing down? <laughs> remember when you were able to just like get in your car and go sit down at a restaurant with your family and friends? Remember when you were able to go to the movie theater without f- looking over your shoulder every time someone coughed? Maybe you did that anyway. I mean, movie theaters are gross. But either way, remember those days of just being carefree, not having to worry about all this sickness and, you know, am I washing my hands enough? Although that was a good practice even before all this happened. But we, we start to reflect. And when we compare today with our version of yesterday, what happens? Nostalgia sets in. We foolishly whitewash and over-exaggerate the past in a way that makes the present seem even more miserable to us than it already is. Remember, oh, that season was so good. That season of life was so good. That period of life was so much better. Uh, I, I remember when I was younger, I... Remember before we had kids, we always used to? How about back in the good old days? This keeps us from being all in this thing called life right here and right now. It's another form of foolish self-indulgence if you really want to call it what it is. Essentially, we're saying that if these days aren't that great, then why should I be? It's a cop-out. Living wisely in the here and now is better than the foolish foolishness of vain nostalgia. Listen, celebrate, remember, reminisce. Those are great things, but avoid looking so fondly backward at some imaginary yesterday that never existed while being robbed of the authentic life that God has for you right now. It's like driving a car forward, but only using the rear view mirror, blacking out your windshield. We wouldn't dare think to do that. I challenge, no, I don't challenge you, but imagine getting on, getting in your car, blacking out your windshield and trying to get on 28 and navigate through Pittsburgh somehow only using your rearview mirror, driving forward while only looking backward. You wouldn't dare think to accept that challenge. Some of you might, and I don't challenge any of you to do that. Uh, I have that on record. Um, But at the same time, imagine doing that, the danger of that, right? And yet that's how a lot of us live our lives, moving forward but constantly looking backward. So all of that leads up to this thing that will help us navigate through all of this, and that's wisdom. Let's look at verses 11 through 14. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. Because wisdom is protection as silver is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Consider the work of God, for who can straighten out what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. So verses 11 and 12 we see that wisdom is an advantage. So both wisdom and money can provide protection in various ways. But here's the thing. Money won't save your life. (laughs) If anything, we learned a few weeks ago that quite the opposite is possible. Ecclesiastes 5.10, remember? The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. Wisdom, however has the potential to do all the things we, we wish money could do. Proverbs 3, 13 through 18 says, Happy is a man who finds wisdom and who acquires understanding, for she is more profitable than silver, and her revenue is better than gold. 
She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can equal her. Talking about wisdom. Long life is in her right hand. In her left, riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant and all her paths peaceful. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her and to those who hold on to her are happy. If you remember our structure from the earlier wise sayings, we have money, pleasant. And we have wisdom, which is difficult to obtain. It's a difficult thing to navigate. And again, the difficult is considered better than the pleasant. Verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, for who can straighten out what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. Understanding the relative place of man to God is important in peaceful acceptance with this life lived under the sun. There's a famous Bible commentator, John Trapp. He, he once said in reference to verse 13, so this idea of who can straighten out what he's made crooked, this is a very, very famous quote from him, and he says this about that verse. Verse 13, he says, There is no standing before a lion. There's no hoisting up a sail in a tempest and no contending with the Almighty. So essentially, we've been taught by this teacher of Ecclesiastes to take what life gives us and to get along as best we can. This is wise living. Rejoice when things are pleasant, but also when you're experiencing difficulty, just remember that God has made both days, God has made both seasons of life. Do we really believe he's sovereign? It's not that he tempts or causes necessarily. Sometimes we cause these seasons uh, of our life to happen. We cause the difficult things to happen because of our own poor choices. But has he not made each day? God is ultimately in control of all things, which leads the author to believe that we can know nothing about the future. It could be good, it could be bad, so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. And that leads me to believe that we need to get out of our, our mindset of life just lived merely under the sun and start trusting the God who knows what's coming left. We need to get out of this life lived merely under the sun and start living under the sun. Get out of the sun, uh, under the sun, S-U-N, and get under the sun, S-O-N. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has a famous quote, and uh, it was made aware to me. Uh, this is just to wrap up the first point, uh, and I'm going to go through. There's a couple more points. I'm going to go through them rather quickly. But uh, Charles Spurgeon has a famous quote, and I happened upon it um, watching a devotion uh, at work a few weeks ago. And it says this, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Sometimes the bad and difficult things in life, the waves of life, have purpose and they have meaning. And that purpose and that meaning may just be a better relationship with our creator. We learn to lean into him more, even if those waves have to literally throw us up against the rock of ages. Even if uh, the waves have to throw us into God, we're better because of it, because we're closer with our creator. So we see that wisdom can discern the pleasant and difficult things in life. Number two, wisdom can help avoid extremes. Let's read verses 15 through 18. In my futile life, I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. Don't be excessively righteous, and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked, and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip from your hand, for the one who fears God will end up with both of them. Think about it. 
As we play God in our own minds, this is how we see life panning out, at least I do. You do right, you live long. You live foolishly, you live short. (laughs) And yet the author is very clear about avoiding both both extremes here. He urges us to pay attention to both of these warnings. Don't make great efforts to prolong your life through super right living. You might be disappointed whenever you die prematurely, and yet at the same time, don't be a fool or you might die prematurely. So, seems simple enough, and yet, we need to understand what it means to be excessively righteous and overly wise, because I don't want you to miss this. I mean, is that not kind of a contradiction to how we're to live as Christians? Should we not strive for righteousness in some way, shape, or form, and wisdom to some capacity? We need to understand that this means something different than true righteousness and true godly wisdom. To be excessively righteous is to strive for a self-made righteousness based on outward attachment to rules. We see this self-righteousness has the potential to lead to much harm. In Matthew 23.5, Jesus offers an excellent summary of the behavior of some of these excessively righteous people, the Pharisees. And he says this, they do everything to be seen by others. This type of lifestyle is condemned by God as attempting to be righteous in the wrong way. But what about being overly wise? Well, that's to think as oneself as self-sufficient in matters of knowledge, especially when it concerns the things of God. One who is overly wise will call God's character and wisdom into question, speculate about his actions, and then judge them according to their own seemingly superior human wisdom. Job, as righteous of a man as he was, gives us a clear example of what it means to exercise overt wisdom when he began to question God about everything that was happening in his life, and God had to directly ask him. Job 38, 2-4 says, this is God speaking to Job, Who is it that obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Could you imagine God speaking those words directly to you? And then God then drills Job with a series of questions regarding godly wisdom and the things of this earth. And Job's reply showed that he had regained true wisdom. This is Job 40, verse 4. He says, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. So we understand now the type of righteousness and wisdom being referred to in this passage. And then verse 18 summarizes this lesson for us. For the one who fears God will end up with both of them. We'll understand both extremes. You'll get it. Putting it all together, the author is teaching moderation in the fear of God. Don't be excessively righteous, overly wise, excessively wicked or foolish. Chase after these extremes. It's not going to prolong your life or provide any satisfaction for you. You need to obey both commands and above all, fear God. When we fear God, we find balance. Point number three, I'm going to go through these next two points very, very quickly. So we have wisdom can help discern the pleasant and difficult things in life. Wisdom can help avoid both extremes. Point number three is wisdom allows us to understand the unjust. These are our final verses here, verses 19 through 22. Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than 10 rulers of a city. There is certainly no one righteous on earth who does good and never sins. Don't pay attention to uh, everything people say 
or you may hear your servant cursing you, for in your heart you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. It's very simple. Wisdom is rare. Therefore, those who have it have a great strength. We understand from this same character we just looked at, Job, that wisdom and strength belong to God and counsel and understanding are his. So if wisdom is truly from God, those who have it have the strength of the Lord. You need wisdom. Why? Well, because there is certainly no one righteous on earth who only does good and never sins. There's no perfect people. So wisdom is needed to navigate through understanding all of these people who are seemingly unjust Plainly stated, the author warns us to not listen too carefully then to other people or you'll likely hear someone cursing you. You might think to yourself, there's people who curse me, but really if you have to ask yourself that question, just flip it, say, have I ever cursed someone else? Probably. So here's the main piece of wisdom in dealing with the unjust. True wisdom understands that no one is completely just perfect or without sin on this earth not even you so we're done um, I could leave it there and that's a very uplifting message for you uh, or we could uh, look at one more point together and this is where I'm going to wrap up in just a minute here so point number four we, we've navigated through how to discern pleasant and difficult things with wisdom we've we've learned that wisdom can help us avoid these extreme ways of living we've understood that everybody is, is imperfect, that there is injustice, but at the same time, wisdom ultimately, this is point number four, wisdom ultimately leads us to realize or remember our need for a savior. To realize this, for those of you who aren't in Christ, Paul addresses Timothy on the reality of wisdom that can help lead to salvation. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10 through 17. He says, you, however, this is Paul writing to Timothy, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. I'm going to skip down a little bit because he starts talking about this idea of you know uh, where this teaching comes from. But he says here in verse 14, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy, here it is, verse 15, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How do we realize our need for a savior? The wisdom we gain from hearing the gospel. This is why the gospel is so important. Because there's wisdom to be gained in salvation in Jesus Christ. Not that wisdom saves you, but the wisdom that enlightens you to this realization of I am a sinner in need of a savior. But wisdom also helps us remember. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. We did a a study on the book of Ephesians before, and this is straight out of that. And this is my prayer for you this morning, our church, our universal church, and also our local body here at Redemption. Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. This is where I'll close. This is why, Paul says, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, here it is, would give you the spirit of of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray in the eye 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Wisdom helps us remember our need for a savior. So wisdom, true wisdom, church, It may seem like backwards thinking to everybody else on this earth, but we need to find value in the difficult things of this life. Learn to kiss the wave. Try our best to avoid these extreme ways of living. If anything, fear God. You'll find the balance there. Just start there. We need to understand that we are unjust to the core of our our very being. We're all sinners, and in all of that, recognize or at least remember, if you're already in Christ, your desperate need for a savior. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to bring your word. God, I pray that in the inadequate lives because of it. Father, as we We've navigated through this difficult book up until this point, Lord. You have spoken so much truth out of it. And Lord, I thank you for uh, the willingness of of our body of believers to want to really dig into your word and a difficult book as it may be and try to find truths in there that you have for us. And Lord, I believe you're radically changing our body because of it. And so, Father, just use us. Lord, we do just continue to pray over the situation that's happening in the United States and just across the world, Lord, and just have your healing hand upon this earth. God, just thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. And thank you, Lord, for the true wisdom that you offer to each one of us if we would just ask for it and receive it. Lord, help us to be able to navigate through this thing called life. We love you, Father, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.